in the history of this sermon series. Um, in their last attempts to trap Jesus in some statement which they can use against him, the Pharisees demand to know directly from Jesus with what authority is he doing the things that he is doing and teaching the things that he is teaching. And again, Jesus puts the question back at them as we talked about last week. He goes, that's fine, that's a good question. I'll tell you what, I'll answer that question if you answer this question. Was John's baptism from God or from the people? And Matthew tells us that they carefully considered their response. And as they pondered the possible answers they could give, they figured out that they couldn't actually answer the question without trapping themselves. So they're sort of caught. If they said from God, then they would leave themselves open to a response from Jesus. And then Jesus could easily say, then why didn't you believe him? If John was a prophet and he was from God, why didn't you believe what he said? But if they said from the people, they feared the crowds, for the crowds believed that John was a prophet. And in Luke we find that the, the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin were concerned that they would be stoned to death if they didn't say he was a prophet or they denied that he was a prophet. So at this point, they're stuck. They've been painted into themselves into a corner. And so they go, we don't know. And so following up with that, Jesus asked them another question. What do you think? And then he tells them a parable of the two sons. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and, re and believe him. Um, Jesus opens this lesson with a parable. And he used these stories the same way, we, the reason why we tell stories. As soon as you start to tell a story, you people are brought into the story. And they see themselves in the story. And so Jesus is doing that. And when you do that, you can bring home the truth more powerfully. And he's doing that precisely in this setting. He's saying to these leaders of Israel, I want you to take a look at this situation, and then I want you to tell me what you think about it. Then in the very first part of verse 31, having told the story, he turns to them and he asks them to give their opinion, give their judgment. Um, they're a ruling on who was the better son. And they give the answer. They say it was the one who had initially said no, but had repented and followed his father's commandment. They answered correctly, 
And then Jesus basically says to them, I want to tell you, you're not that son. You know, that's basically, this is the one that really oh. listened to the God's will. Good answer, and you're not him. You're not that person. So even as Jesus is explaining the parable, he's applying it, and he's applying it painfully right to the hearts of the religious leaders. He says, basically, there's only two responses to John's ministries. And these two sons represent the two responses. Either John was from God or he wasn't. Either, and these two sons either are representing their responses. And again, like most of Jesus' parables, the story really isn't about the two boys. It has nothing to do with the two sons. It's about us. It's about every one of us. It's about the two kinds of people in this world. The one kind professes faith in God, but doesn't live a faithful life. We have churches that are full of people who proclaim, but never really enter in. They, they sit in the church, but Jesus says, go work in the vineyard, and they go, eh, nah. There are two kinds of people. And notice the first son. His problem is just the problem of defiance and disrespect. The father says, will you work in the vineyard? And he goes, no, I'm not going. But later on, he repents. And the, the word literally means he changed his mind. He's out there. He's doing his own thing. He says, no, I told my dad I wasn't going to work. And he's hanging out with his friends. He says, but, you know, I'm feeling a little bit guilty about that. And really, my dad's always taking care of me, so why wouldn't I go ahead and go work in the vineyard? Because ultimately, it's going to benefit me anyway. So, yeah, I think I'll go. And he goes and works. Um, I would describe this, this, this son sort of saying, he doesn't have a good start, but he has a great finish. And a good beginning is fine, but a good ending is essential. And a lot of people will have good beginnings or what looks to be like a good beginning, but then they never have that good ending. And that's really what's important. And so you can sort of imagine the drama. You're trying to get everybody organized for the day. You got your workers out there. You got your family. Say, okay, this is, you know, I want you guys to go work in this area of the vineyard. I want you to go work in this vineyard. And son, I want you to, hey, dad, I ain't going. And you can just imagine the chaos that goes on in that type of a setting. When, you, you know, a son says, you know what, I'm sick and tired of working in the vineyard. I think, you know, I think I'm going to go hang out in town with some of my friends. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Um, and so he says, no. The second son, he's a little bit more complicated. He gets up in the morning and... You know, his father comes to him and he hears what's going on with the first son. And then the father says, okay, how about you? Yes, sir, I'm your man. I'm ready to go. And, you know, he's trying to, he's saying what he thinks the father wants him to hear. With no intention of actually going out into the field. But dad's really ticked at my brother and to get in good graces with my dad, I'll just say, sure, I'll go. And then bails and doesn't do it. 
He's sort of the one that has a good start, but a failed finish. And I think about that um, because this parable is more of a parable about endings than it is about beginnings. It's about finishes, not starts. And, and what you see in that one son is so much what takes place in our culture. Because we live in a culture of broken promises. Of broken promises. People will say almost anything and have no sense of remorse or shame or guilt about breaking promises. Um, and we will find almost any excuse to break a promise. Um, and we, I mean, we hear it everywhere, from commercials on TV to politicians to even real say the same things. We need to get together. Yeah, yeah, we'll get together soon. Yeah, give me a call. I'll, I'll call you tomorrow. Uh, the check's in the mail. You know, we, we come up with all kinds of different ways that we just don't tell the truth. Because it's much easier to say yes to something and not do it than it is to say something to somebody that says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so we have a culture of lies. The problem is that we lie, and then we use the example of good intentions. Well, I intended to do it. I intended to do that. And so we use all kinds of good intentions to either hurt people or try to bless people or to cover up. Because I've seen parents who've done just things that they know they shouldn't have done. Knew it right up front, and they go, but my intentions were good. I go, really? You knew that you should have done this with your child, and then you tell me that you had good intentions? I don't think so. I think you have good excuses, but you never really planned on doing what you felt you should have done in the first place. I've got to tell you why this sometimes hurts me, because I've given my word to people, and I have not been a promise keeper. And I think there's even people that have left a church or left this church because they said, well, Andy said he was going to do this and he really didn't do it, and so I don't trust him. Because trust is the easiest thing to lose and the hardest thing to develop. And so keeping our word about certain things is so vitally important in order to build the kingdom, to be a light to Christ. Um, so anyway, the second son said what he thought the father wanted to hear, but he does not go into the vineyard. So at the end of the day, he's the problem. Now Jesus, by showing this picture, is not saying that one of these responses was right and one of these responses was wrong. Jesus is actually saying that the responses of both sons were wrong. One, one said he was going to do it and never did it. The other one said... He wasn't going to do it and eventually did it, but both showed disrespect just at different times. The Father's commands, and again, this whole parable is showing the foolishness of disobedience, especially to God, because 
God always has our best interests. And so when he says do this and we don't do it, we're basically saying, God, I know you have my best interest, but really you don't know me as well as I know myself. And you don't know what I need as well as I know what I need. And you don't know how to take care of what I need as well as I know how to take care of my need. So see you later, God. I'm just going to go and do what I want to do. And that's just foolishness to live that way. Because it was going to be their benefit to work in the family vineyard. I mean, it's the family vineyard. Whatever they do, the money's going to come into the family coffer, and eventually that's going to be theirs. This vineyard's going to be theirs. The money's going to be theirs. It's not like the dad said, hey, I want you to go out and get a job at McDonald's and then, you know, put it into our bank account. He's saying, whatever I ask you to work, it's going into the family. It's helping the family. And that's exactly what God does with us. He says, I want you to go into the vineyard and I want you to minister one to another because eventually it, it blesses the family. It blesses all of us. Um, yeah, both of these sons refuse the father. Again, he's showing us the foolishness of sin. Um, but then one of the sons realized that he had done wrong and he repented. He repented of it. In fact, he went back and did what his father commanded him to do in the first place. Um, so basically, Jesus is asking this question. Both of these sons responded wrongly in the first place. So which of them was right with God in the end? The one that said he wouldn't but didn't, or would but didn't, or the one that said that he wouldn't but later did. And again, Jesus is showing us a picture of a repentant son and a hypocritical son. A repentant son and a hypocritical. The hypocritical son is the one who pretends to be very concerned and obedient to his father and never does the father's will. We all have known kids like that. We may have been the kid like that. You know, and we've seen families like that where the one that looks perfect, for anybody who remembers Leave it to Beaver, anybody here remember Leave it to Beaver? The Eddie Haskells of life. <laughs> yes, Mrs. Cleaver. Yes, Mr. Cleaver. Um, those people, they're hypocritical. Um, but they were both dis disobedient. Now, Jesus isn't preaching something new here. If you go tur turn to Ezekiel, Chapter 18, verse 20. Or just write it down. This is about 600 years before. Ezekiel writes, The person who sins shall die. That's basically Ezekiel's version of Paul's words that the wages of sin is death. But he goes on, but if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All the transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he shall live. So it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It's what you're doing today. If there is a repentance and a coming back 
then you're fine. Ezekiel saying that God will judge sin, but those who sin and repent of those sins and come back to God will receive his grace. Now, the message is, the reality is, is that God is more willing to forgive and to receive repentant sinners than repentant sinners are willing to repent. God is far more willing to receive a person who's repentant than a person who's repentant is willing, or a person who sins is willing to repent. Um, Jesus is saying to us in this parable that the Father is far more ready to receive you than you are willing to let go of your sins. And so that's the hard part of that. Am I really holding on to some of my hypocrisy? Am I holding on to some of my sins? Am I holding on to this falsehood of who I am and then using words like, well, I intended to. And my father-in-law used to say all the time, because I used to say I intended to all the time, and he would just look at me and he'd say, well, you know, Andy. And I'd go, I know, I know. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's not like he had to remind me, but it's like he had to remind me. Um, so you see... The background of this parable is the wickedness of hypocrisy. The parable is showing us that God desires repentance, but at the same time it is showing us the hypocrisy of those who do not act as though they need to repent of their sins. We saw the hypocrisy of the religious leaders on the one hand, and yet the repentance of the sinners on the other. And now in verse 31 and 32, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots Enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards repent and believe him. He teaches us here that God will exclude from his kingdom all those who believe they're right in their own eyes. That they refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, and why do you think he is so forceful on people who are hypocritical? Hypocrisy blinds us to the grace of God. When we don't think we need anything, then it blinds us from God's salvation. It blinds us from God's grace. If you don't think you need forgiveness, or if you come across a person who doesn't think that they need to for be forgiven of their sins and have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you could preach to them for an hour and a half. And you can give them every scripture there is. You could explain to them as clearly as anybody could. The Romans Road, the four spiritual lies, your testimony. You could go through the whole Bible. But if they do not believe that they need to be forgiven, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's the sin of hypocrisy. It says, I'm good. The hypocrite wants to pretend he is right. He wants to pretend he is righteous. He wants to pretend to be in right relationship with God, even when he's not. And therefore, he denies himself the grace 
which God is waiting to pour out on their life. That's the danger of hypocrisy. It's not that a person lies to you. Who cares? What's important is that you block yourself from the grace of God. See, if you don't think you need a Savior, then the offer of a Savior means absolutely nothing to you. If you don't think you need forgiveness of sins, then it really doesn't matter what somebody preaches about you in regards to sin. It blinds us to the message of grace. And he uses a very striking example as he speaks to them. And notice what he, what he says in verse 31. Truly I say to you, unto the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Tax collectors and prostitutes are going to be ahead of you. Now, think about the worst possible people in your mind. Because for, for, for them, it would be tax collectors and prostitutes. In our culture, we may say, well, what's so, what's so bad about a tax collector and a prostitute? We don't, our morality has changed so much that it doesn't matter. So who would you put in there as the worst possible sinner that you could possibly imagine? And ask yourself, you know, can you believe if they were repentant, that they're going to be ahead of some of us who are not repentant. Some of us who are the hypocrites. Um, that's what Jesus is saying. You sit back, you Pharisees, and act like you're religious, but your hearts are nowhere near me. These people who have repented because they've recognized what their behavior was like. They recognized their sins. They recognized their need for a savior. They, on the other hand, have said, I, I, need, to, I need to accept Christ. Now, what does all this mean for us? I think there are three observations we can make about the parable. First, a fundamental observation about all parables. Those who study parables will say that all of Jesus's um, parables that focus on agriculture are totally accurate. There's no inaccuracy about them. But I think there's more than that. All of Jesus's parables are accurate psychologically and emotionally. He knows people. He understands their responses. Um, in this parable, Jesus shows that he fully expects strong reaction to his claims upon our lives. He's the one who said, when we hear the claim he wants to make on our lives, we would at first glance say, nope, I don't want to go into the vineyard. Nope, I don't want to work for you. This parable shows that he is not surprised by the defiant. He's not surprised by the reaction of his first son. In fact, he just builds it into his story. Um, and I don't know about you, but I find that very comforting. That even when we say no, that that doesn't surprise Jesus. But at the fact that he's patient with us long enough that maybe one day we'll say yes. Um, because 
there's things that Jesus may be telling all of us to do. And we're saying at this point, I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not entirely sure I want to do that. The second insight may not be quite so comforting. Jesus also makes it clear in this parable that he fully expects the hypocritical ones too. He is not surprised where many use the right words. Oh yes, we worship the Lord. We love you. We praise you. We think you're wonderful. And then he says, then go into the vineyard and says, not today. Not today. He's not surprised by that. And what's interesting is that we are. We get surprised over things that are not a surprise to God at all. He gives us this fact, and our purpose isn't to be surprised. Our purpose is to evaluate, which one am I? Not to take a look and say, wow, there's hypocrites out there. <laughs> you know? I can remember a person saying, I don't want to go to church. I go, why not? Goes, because there's, there's hypocrites. I go, really? You go to the grocery store? Well, yeah. You go to work? Well, yeah. And you don't think there's hypocrites at the grocery store or at work? Well, yeah. Then really, why are you not going to church? But as long as we can look at somebody else, then we don't have to look at ourselves. And so to be able to say, you know, where am I? between these two situations. Um, this parable is a parable about the will of God. And what is the will of God? Is that every person believe in him. And every person is obedient to him. When John, and then in verse 32, three times he uses the word believe. When John the Baptist came in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him. The harlots and the tax collectors believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not afterwards repent, relent and believe him. It's a parable about belief. It's a parable about faith. Faith, according to this parable, is not only hearing, but it's also hearing the word of God and doing it. The parable is profoundly ethical, and it says, if you hear it, then do it. Don't make excuses for not doing it. Uh, because your faith is not only seen in what you hear, but in what you do. Not only what you agree to, but what you do with your life. And so the parable is a word and work parable. It pulls the two together. And it's not for the purpose of salvation. It's for the purpose of saying, if I believe this, Obviously, this is how my life should live. If God, I love God and God loves me and he says, do this, of course I'm responsible for doing that. So, and Jesus lived out what he is now advocating. When you look at Jesus Christ's life, that you'll see what he said and what he did is inseparable. And he calls us to follow him. He didn't only speak words of love to you and me, he died on the cross. His, not, his love is not just an illustration on a cross. That's the very thing itself. That's what love is. His word and his work are inseparable. And now he tells us to do the same. It's a parable about faith. Um, 
And the more you, th the third observation is this parable shows us that second thoughts are better than first thoughts. Sometimes we've worked so hard at getting a person to make a commitment that we don't let them really ponder what it means. And we think that if I don't get them to make a commitment, that I've done something wrong. Folks, we're not the evangelists. We're just the tools. And it's not up to us to save a person. Jesus does that. We're there to witness to them. Because sometimes we've tried to get people to make a commitment. And they say, okay, yes, I'm good. I'm, I'm in because you wore me down. You know, I, I can Every day, every day at work, you tell me the same. Okay, I'm good. I'll even go to church with you. It's the, it's the one that says, yeah, I'll do it just to get him off my back. And we need to be able to pray through, share the testimony, uh, and never stop sharing, but not to be afraid of a person because second thought, or a person's lack of response, because second thoughts are far more important than first thoughts. And so let them grow. Because the more you think about his will, the more sense it makes. At first glance, you may not be sure you want to let Jesus to be Lord of your life. But the more you think about it, the more you reflect on it, the more his lordship makes sense. It's a parable that teaches that second thoughts are far better than first thoughts. Um, I don't want to use this as an illustration because the verdict still isn't in. But a month before Gwen and I got engaged, she broke up with me. It took a month later for second thoughts to kick in. Now, the <laughs> I don't know if I should use that illustration yet because we don't know, you know, until, you know, she may have said, you know, and those second thoughts were really, what a mistake I made. Um, but it's so true in life. We, we, we have first thoughts about a person, first thoughts about a belief, first thoughts about Christ, first thoughts about things. But as we ponder them, we begin to say, wow, that makes a lot more sense. That really does help. Put it this way, it's far better to finally believe what at first you could not say than to say at first what you don't believe. Okay. Far better to believe what at first you couldn't say than to say at first what you don't believe. Our Lord teaches us that in this parable he'd rather have us to say, No, Father, I don't want to go into the vineyard and then struggle with the Father's will in our own hearts and repent and discover that his will would be true than to have us say at the beginning, oh yes, Father, I'd love to go work in the vineyard and then not do it. And notice the tremendous integrity in the parable. Integrity that you find in the ministry of Jesus. Um, and then last, what you're becoming is more important than what you've done. What you're becoming is far more important than what you've been. The message that Jesus brought was the kingdom of God is here. 
right now in your midst. And a person can have a relationship with Christ today, right now, no matter where we've been, what we've done. And the promises that Jesus makes are always true. The promises that people make are not. Jesus is offering to anyone who is interested the chance to leave yesterday behind um, forever. We, have met, we may have kept promises or may have made promises that we didn't keep. Um, and we can let go of mistakes. We can let go of sins. We can let go of heartaches. We can let go of rebellion. We can let go of disappointments. We can let go of everything in our life and trust that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can change us and make us new. The Christian life has been described in the past like this. I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be, and I'm not yet what I'm going to be. Um, again, Jesus' parable today is a parable, parable for the, the slow adopters. The slow adopters. Jesus saying, I know that some of you out there have said you believe in me, that you have not yet to live that way. And I know others out there that have lived a good life, but have yet to find me as your personal savior. But I want you to know that I promise to all of you that I'll be here waiting for you whenever you come. And that's one promise that can't be broken. See, we make promises and we expect people to lie to us. My wife's saying is everybody lies. And it's true, except Jesus. His promises are true. In a world where broken promises pile up and clutter our lives, there are some promises that we know we can stake our life on. Promises like, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Promises like, I am with you, even to the end of the age. See, through Jesus Christ, God has promised to love us and be with us. He promises to weep with us, to mourn with us, to comfort us, to endure pain with us, to rejoice with us. God promises to love each and every one of us if there is only one person in the world to love, and that is us. That's his promise. And we become so jaded by the lies of our society that we don't even believe the promises of God. God also promises us to make us more than ourselves. Through God, all things are possible. If you could look into the future and see the person that God has promised to make you, to help you become the person that he would like you to become, you'd stand up and cheer and immediately you'd say, no more disobedience. No more hypocrisy. No more lies. This is what Jesus has said. This is who he wants me. This is the person I'm going to be. God promises to love us as we are and to love us into becoming more than we are. And that's a promise that can never be broken. This is a parable about faith and a response. Which son are you? One last illustration. Anybody here promise keepers before? Anybody here promise keepers? Okay. It was an organization for men and they were taught how to be promise keepers. 
and they'd have these huge rallies where men would come and they'd be taught and what it meant to be a promise keeper. I was watching a football game one time and the cameraman pulled onto a shirt of a guy he's wearing that says, my wife thinks I'm at promise keepers. That's pretty much how our society goes. Um, our choice is, are we going to be promise keepers? Now, to tie this into what's going on, next Sunday, if at all possible, be here. And don't say yes, so you don't have to say no, and then not show up. But in your heart, in your mind right now, say, you know what? It's really that important for this church that I'm here and I look around at the people in this church and I love them and they love me. Why wouldn't I be here? Why wouldn't I be here? Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. And I thank you for the power of guilt. Um, But a guilt can be relieved by your love, your grace, your power to forgive, your power to restore, your power to renew, your promises to do all of that. And Father, help us to hold on to the promises and help us to take a look at our own lives and say, am I a person who just says yes to a lot of things and doesn't follow through with them? Or am I a person who ponders those thoughts and even though I may have said no at one time, I'm saying yes fully to you today. And from this day forward, I, I make that commitment to follow you and to follow you completely. For my person that is still just pondering what it means to truly surrender a life to you and to trust that the picture you have for me is far greater than the picture I can paint for myself. So, Father, I ask your continued blessing upon each of us that we can go forth to be a blessing one to another. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask your blessing now, in my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>